0: All right. We will go ahead and get started. I'm glad we can look into church history today, and it's uh, it's nice to have Madeline back from college. Good to have you here, and uh, yeah, it's a it's a pleasure. It's nice to have Judson back from uh, seventh grade, <laughs> and uh, yeah, we're we're gonna look. This will be the, the last study that we do on the Reformation, and then Andrew's going to teach next week, and we're going to look at some post Reformation before looking just one week, two weeks of post Reformation, and then one week um, in kind of the more modern church. Um, Today, if there'd be three topics that I would like us to think about as we're going through this, because some of these are just stories, and if we just are hearing a bunch of stories, they can be interesting if you like history, they can be not interesting if you don't, potentially. Um, I like stories, I like things set up in story form, but um, people have different things that they're interested in, but in these stories, don't just hear the stories, but be, be thinking in this, I think there's kind of three pushers that we have today. One is how powerful and how important and how central is the Word of God. And we're going to see some things connected to the Reformers and non-Reformers that we're going to be saying, wow, look at why was the Word such a big deal? And I hope we think, is it a big deal to me today? So be thinking about that. Um, Be thinking about our hearts I think that the important thing for a believer to every day say, you know, God sees my heart. Other people may, might not see this or this or this, but, but God sees everything. I think one of the, the ugly sides that's coming more and more to the front in the Reformation is all these groups of people that are... They can say the right things and they can do some of the right things, but where is their heart? And we would echo, and your hearts are far from me, that God has said it at different times in history, and, um, and you are going to see even more of that. And then, and then you know, I, I preached on this two weeks ago, but I think it's so important for Christians to think trauma, even up until death, and is God really good, and is... Is trauma and hardship part, or can it be part, or is it often part of the Christian life? So when, when my parents came to Christ, my mom grew up in a church that didn't teach the Bible well, but she feels like she was truly converted as a little girl. Um, then continuing on, my parents weren't following Christ. You know, my dad knew nothing of God and they, they came to Christ, and my, my, uh, my dad came from a completely unchurched background, didn't know anything about anything about anything, and he's just said, and I've said this before a bunch of times, but these Christians are so creepy. He'd go to church with my mom, and they'd sing songs about blood, and he'd think, you are the weirdest, grossest group of people. You sing songs about blood. You are nuts. Well, God opened his eyes, and uh, they were both again, my mom would think she was already converted, my dad came to Christ, and um, many of my mom's older brothers had gone heavily into the charismatic movement at that time, and, um, you know, so this would have been 1980, 80, 81, when my dad became a Christian, and so those, of you, you know, you can think of some of the charismatic stuff going on at that time, and so big jimmy swagger fans and so that was my my parents had some of those influences and so you know i still have some some relatives that believe you know if you're sick it's because it's you know well what sin did you do today i mean you don't have to tell me but god knows and that's why you're sick but but when i was a kid that was really normal you know go to cousin's house and we'd watch you know gospel bill uh convert the world as a as a sheriff in a cartoon while Saving people from sickness because they learn to have faith and things like that. we'd be like, what's this gospel, Bill? And my dad would be like, ah, don't be watching that stuff with your cousins. But, uh, so, so, there was some teaching I would hear as a kid, probably influenced by my uncles and some others that would be, Christians shouldn't have trauma like that because trauma is for others. And... Um, But I think church history, and even more importantly, God's Word, and maybe a a third level of importance would be our own experience. We know trauma is part of life. And if we think we're not going to have trauma here, we do not see the life that truly is around us. And we don't read, you know, why did Paul have all this trauma? So I think in what we'll see today... A little bit, and maybe you don't think this way, but many Christians would say, why did the reformers go through so much hard stuff? Maybe something, you know, something wasn't quite right there. And, and we've seen warts and ugliness in, in each of the godly men and women that we've studied, right? There's been feet of clay. These are imperfect people, but yet God in his goodness often allows his children to go through horrific things even as Natalie, as we finished off Luther two weeks ago, and Natalie reminded us, hey, his wife had it really hard at the end. After Luther died, financially things were bad. They got run out of town. They lost their farm. She's kind of escaping with her several children and died six years later. And it was really, really hard, but she was faithful to the end. So the word of God, where are our hearts? And trauma and death being normal for the believer but he has his children and he's bringing them to himself. And, and he's got this, It's a big thing that we're gonna be looking at today. So uh, we'll start off with Henry VIII. It's quite the little outfit. Get to see one of you guys wear, wear this at some point, looking pretty classy. Uh, Henry VIII is kind of interesting because he's, he's a, a giant of a guy for that time. He's six foot two and 200 pounds when he's 18 years old and uh, gets married for the first time. He might have been almost 19 when he got married for the first time when he became king. And, uh, you know, that's a big man for back then. You know, now that'd be an inch shorter than Jed and 20 pounds heavier, maybe. You know, it's not that big of a guy now. But at that time, he's a giant of an athletic guy. And uh, they do from his from his armor, he had a 32-inch waist. And uh was, you know, super athletic and was jousting all the time. Actually, jousting is what probably took him down. He got hit with a lance in his uh upper upper thigh and it uh, festered and bled and infected pretty much for the rest of his life, once he was kind of a, a middle-aged, a youngish middle-aged guy, maybe. Um, he also gained a lot of weight. Uh, he went from his armor went from a 32-inch waist when he was first a king, to at least a 52-inch waist. Uh, later on, the last armor that he had, and uh, between gout and infections and other things, he was uh, probably a real unhandsome guy by the time Catherine Parr married him as his, as his sixth wife. Um, his father, Henry VII, um, had an older son, Arthur. Arthur was supposed to marry Catherine of Aragon. Um, you know how even, even in our, our world today, it's these people are our friends. Oh, but except now they're our enemies. And so people that at one time, our great grandparents would have looked at a country and said, you know, when I was a kid, we would hear people talk about Japan and they would say things that are awful. And, you know, my kids couldn't imagine hearing anybody saying anything bad about Japan. So there's like things change and historically, you know, what did Ukrainians think of Russia now and then and but still some think this now and th- you know those things kind of ebb and flow so we have a tendency of reading history and saying well uh, Spain and England have always hated each other but actually for these decades here Spain and England were, were buddies and you know Scotland and France were buddies and they were all brawling with each other and had decades and decades and decades of I'm going to try to control this and I'm going to fight this and So all that political stuff is kind of mushed in with with what's going on with the Reformation. And oftentimes what a king of a country might allow, he might allow it because he might feel that that might weaken another country that he's against. Or there'd be a marriage alliance and I've got to make this marriage happen, so I'm going to allow this or I'm going to disallow that. So... um, uh, Ferdinand and Isabella have a daughter, Catherine of Aragon, as she is, as she is known in history. She's, uh, young, she marries Arthur, who's Henry VII, It's his dad, Henry VII's oldest son. Uh, it's kind of interesting, uh, Arthur and Catherine are writing letters back and forth, and Latin is the only language that they have that meshes, and they're writing Latin back and forth, and Arthur writes his dad, like, I'm in love with her, I love her, and, uh, they meet in person, and they, but their Latin is taught so differently that they can't speak the Latin to each other. They can only write it. You have fun marriage time. But they figured it out, clearly. Um, so, so they get married. Uh, she's only 15. He dies four months later. She says for the rest of her life, the marriage was never consummated. But we loved each other deeply and... and uh, A big enough dowry is given from, for, from Spain to England that nobody thinks they can back out of it. Um, in fact, Henry VII, his current wife had died, and he thought of marrying Catherine just to keep everything in the fold. He dies soon after. Uh, Henry Eighth becomes king, and Henry's like, yeah, I'll marry her. We've got to keep these countries together. We've got to keep huge amount of finances together, and we've got to have power against, against uh, France and Scotland. So they get married. They have to have a, a special papal dispensation saying, you guys are, you're allowed to marry your uh, brother's wife. So, and we won't go into a bunch of time on this, but if, if you look in, in uh, Deuteronomy 25, you've got uh, the, the liverite marriage of my brother dies. I'm unmarried, my brother dies, I have to marry his wife and um, bring up children in his name. The oldest child is in his name. Um, Leviticus 20, Leviticus 18, both have the phrase, if you marry your brother's wife, it's an abomination, and you will remain childless. That's That's your punishment. So I would understand the uh, Leviticus 18 and the Leviticus 20 to be if your brother casts his wife away they get divorced and then you swoop in there and marry her, wrong, 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 is what what the Mosaic Law is saying right there. Um, They did not take it that way at that time. It was any time, any place, that should never happen, except Henry needed to, you know, politically wanted this to happen. Um, There's, Writing of the day, you'll see some pictures. Well, I'll put some pictures up there. I would submit to you that none of these ladies are particularly attractive, but maybe the painter. You know, who knows? Um, it is said that Catherine of Aragon was brilliantly smart, and several people have said, you know, she was the most beautiful woman that it's ever walked into any. If she walked into a room, she's the most beautiful woman in there. We'll just have to take take their word for it because these paintings, it's not good. Um, Catherine's 23, pushing 24 at the time, marries Henry VIII. Um, clearly their marriage was consummated. They had six children in nine and a half years, but they, their first one died almost immediately. Second son was named Henry. He died at seven weeks. No one recorded why. They, ha- they ended up having three daughters and three sons, and they all died, except... Uh, Mary, so Henry's then saying, "I've I've got to have a male heir." Uh, the norm at that time was to have lots of mistresses, and so he's ha- he's having at least one son, if not more. So he's got he's got sons, and he's like, you know, I need I need to have a male heir. So you know, you're out of here, Catherine. So an interesting thing about Catherine of Aragon, uh, a staunch Catholic, but was not into relics was not into some of the excesses of Roman Catholicism at the time. She has some writing that's pretty God-honoring, I would say. Um, She writes a letter of forgiveness of Henry VIII uh, at her deathbed that's really incredible, that someone could even write that. And he treated her badly. I mean, he treated Mary, her son, badly. He'd put her in this castle and then demote her and demote her and demote her and... um, financially things weren't good for her at that time you know culturally we would think now if that happened to your daughter she would move back with you she'd come back to Spain was not how things were done at the time so pretty pretty interesting doing some doing some reading there Um, he tried so he tried to get hey I want to divorce her he said hey he invokes the Leviticus 2021 and says I can't I can't be with this woman I I didn't know after you know 12 years earlier saying no this has to happen this is this is the only way it's going to work um, he gets people to agree with him that, yeah, he should not have done that. This is a, this is, you know, God saying, you're going to be childless, really dumb. I mean, you have six children in nine and a half years You're not too childless. One is alive as we speak. Um, this is clearly the work of a ungodly man, um, gets divorced with her. He's, he's been having an affair with Anne Boleyn's older sister and apparently won't sleep with him until they get married. They get married, she's pregnant right away, has a child. Um, Henry has an illegitimate son named Fitzroy, who he has him get married at, at like age 14 because he wants to see if he can have, you know, it, like the amount of yuckiness involved with that is pretty amazing. Fitzroy dies at 17 after three years of marriage, has no children. And, and at, the, at the same time, Henry VIII is is given the title Defender of the Faith by the Pope because he's doing writing against the Reformers. And um, the Pope is saying, you're an amazing defender of the faith. You know, we, we love you. We're all, we're all in this together. But when all this is going down with Catherine, he's finding out, you know, I, I'm not going to be allowed to stay. I'm excommunicated from the Catholic Church. Then he says, hey, financially, If we get all these monasteries, the monasteries in England at that time were worth maybe four times as much as the the British crown was worth at that time, all the wealth of the king. said, you know, we we can do something here. Plus, we're spending huge amounts of money are getting sent to Italy every year. And you know what? We're going to start keeping that in-house. So all those things kind of push together. So Henry does kind of a modified church, uh, the Episcopal Church, now known as the Anglican Church. Today, there are Anglican churches that honor God that are, that are good churches, and there, there are many that, that aren't much different than the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, if you go on, depending on where you go on the mission field, you might go to, if you spent some time in Australia or New Zealand, there's some terrific Anglican churches. I know in the United States, there's some good, very good Anglican churches, but there are many that do, that look at baptism as salvific, um, that... I know when I was in the Caribbean, the Anglican church was their biggest hindrance to conversion, was their, was their thought. I mean, they, they felt like babies were baptized, people lived however they wanted, and then usually melded it with their Rastafarian religion into this really ugly thing. So, um, uh, let's see, anything more about Henry? So, Pope Leo calls him defender of the faith. Um, even in this new church, Henry upheld celibacy with the priests, uh, private mass confessions. Um, later Pope excommunicates him when he marries Anne Boleyn. She at, you know, nine months and one week has, has little baby Elizabeth. Um, Henry's called supreme head of the church of England, but he truly lived as an unconverted man. So if you're interacting with an Episcopalian, and they try to tell you Henry the Eighth was a godly guy. he was not there's pretty much zero in history that would indicate he had a heart for God um, Anne Boleyn was was almost certainly a believer. She had a copy of Scripture and was, uh, and would read it. She let her servants read it, actually one of her servants read it, and then turned it over to one of henry 's people and Anne almost got in trouble for that one, but she was actually pregnant at the time and so did not. Um, clergy was really in bad shape in uh, England at this time. Um, we'll see some slides later on, but a lot of falsifying of religious things to, get, to manipulate people. So sometimes in history, you like to say, well, it was really bad in Italy or it was really bad in parts of Germany. It was everywhere, that fakiness. And I just a challenge that we have for every one of us is God sees hearts. Where's my heart? Am I doing anything to manipulate? Am I doing anything to squeeze people a certain way? Um, I remember even in Bible college, I had a a guy that came through and he said, you know, make sure and cry this often because people really, they'll do better stuff for God if you cry. I had another guy would say, you know, you need, those altar calls were big in that group. And I remember he said, you need to prep during the week and make sure someone's coming down the aisle. So do whatever you got to do, but you get someone coming down the aisle because then other people will join them, so make sure you know and that was his, his advice to the Bible college students until he went back to his church and 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 I just want to say we, we must do everything with our children and with our church and at work where there 's zero manipulation because that ends justifies the means is just rampant in history of the ugliness of it, and then we can think, oh, but we would never do that but there certainly are areas we're tempted to do that. and We just have to fight it and fight it and fight it and look for it and have people that will speak truth into our lives um, on that. So uh, we, we got into a little bit um, Anne Boleyn. Um, we could go through a, a few of these ladies. So um, uh, Anne Boleyn's executed... He accused her of an affair, almost certainly was not true, but having another daughter was not acceptable to him. He actually said, "Well, maybe my illegitimate son Fitzroy could be king." Uh, he marries Jane Seymour right here, liked her a lot. She dies in childbirth. Has Henry the, or has uh, Edward the sixth, who becomes king and is a really godly young man. Dies at sixteen, maybe pushing seventeen. But some of the things that Edward the sixth writes are incredible. He had. Godly men pouring into him, probably not his father very much. And he was a, a uh, really, really godly young man. Uh, Anne of Cleves. Um, Jane Seymour dies in, or after childbirth. I think Edward's like 12 days old when, she, when his mother dies. So then um, uh, Thomas Cromwell finds Anne of Cleves. And she's German. And he needs, he's trying to connect with Lutherans. Uh, Thomas Cromwell is a staunch reformer. He's like, hey, if we could get him connected with, some, with the Germans, both militarily and religiously, these Lutherans, this would be really, really good. So he brings Anne of Cleves, and to me, Anne of Cleves doesn't look too terrible there, but Henry said she was a horse face. It's kind of a rude thing to say about your brand new bride. And uh, so that didn't really work. That marriage was never consummated, uh, and they were divorced. But you know, the shame of that, she couldn't go back to, you know, she, she lived in England the rest of her life. Um, he marries Catherine Howard. She's very young at the time, very attractive, very immoral. Uh, they get married. She admits almost immediately uh, she'd had an affair uh, into their marriage a little bit. She was only 18 when they got married. And she'd had affairs before their marriage. And both the guys admitted it. Everybody got their heads chopped off. Um, yeah, yeah, that was, that was a mess. So then he goes to Catherine Parr, and we could actually, if you want to do some reading on someone who's really, really interesting, read, read about Catherine Parr. Catherine Parr, super godly woman, put Christ first, a staunch reformer, brilliantly smart. I mean, brilliantly smart. And she, she wasn't getting nice, Henry VIII. She was getting ugly, obese, they said he would have just pus dripping down his legs when he'd okay. be walking around. I mean, he was, he, was no, uh, he was no peach when she got him. But she was a super godly woman. I would encourage you to do some research on Catherine Parr. She's really neat. Um, so we, we go to getting scripture. And we looked at, at Wycliffe's um, translation from 150, 180 years ago. Uh, Tyndale is around the same time. Uh, Tyndale's just crazy brilliant he uh he knows latin greek hebrew french english german italian there's another one anyway he's and he's fluent in all those it's not like he can get through he's fluent 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 in all those um he does a bunch of translation work even as a really young man He's getting a hold of, he got a hold of a Greek manuscript and he was like, it means this, it it means this, and so in his translation, Tyndale doesn't have his name on a Bible per se, because he didn't translate an entire Bible, got the New Testament and maybe a quarter of the Old Testament, but he had a a way with language and words that really ushered in Shakespearean English and... um, had a clarity. He changed several words that um, pushed the continuation of bad Roman Catholic doctrine, and he would translate those words in into uh, both more biblically accurate and theologically accurate ways. Brought clarity, and he got in a bunch of trouble for it. Interestingly, you know, when he dies in 1536, and he's he's killed. Um, martyred it's so interesting because england by that time is reforming if you will it's there's reforming here and reforming here and reforming here but tyndale made a lot of enemies because he wouldn't translate how people had won. he'd be traveling around he'd find a printer the printer would get caught he'd escape out of town so he's on the continent at that time he's traveling around traveling around he eventually ends up in um he's in brussels belgium and um well it would become belgium uh once it split But, um, and somebody came through and like, man, I love this guy. I want to get to know him better. And hey, can I, I want to help you translate. And he was just, uh, so he got caught, got um, uh, strangled and um, strangled a chain. They put a chain around him and twisted around a thing and strangled him. And then they uh, burned him, burned his body. But uh, interestingly, right over here would be uh, Wycliffe's translation. And I don't even know where that is in the Bible. I can't read any of that. I, I can read God right here, but this was, you know, so think like late 1300s when Wycliffe did his translation. Well, English, the English language had changed so much to the early 1500s that uh, this would be Tyndale right here. And if it was closer, you could read, you could get through some of, some of this. Uh, I don't think we could get through very much of that at all. So we they needed a modern translation. Additionally, people were learning to read. You know, uh, Wycliffe's Middle English. I mean, you know, this is, this is our, this is, you got modern English, if you will. Although if you read, you know, if you've ever read like an original King James Bible, you know, it would not be a readable thing in a normal church. It's, it'd be really hard, you know, like, what, S's or F's? and Anyway, they've got several things like that, so it'd be challenging. Um... Tyndale's translation, really good. This is him getting strangled. That's the chain on there. And then I think the, the uh, wood right there is, the, is a symbol of him getting burned later. Uh, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. Yeah, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. England, uh, A priest had, had told Wycliffe when he was a young man, he was first starting and translating, um, you know, it's better to know the laws of the Pope than the laws of God. So, like, why are you wasting your time even reading the Old Testament? Knowing some of those pre-reformers and maybe even some of the reformers, Wingley had a little of this going on, and certainly a lot of the Anabaptists did, where the Old Testament was not held in a high enough esteem. Um, uh, wh- why would you be even trying to translate the Old Testament? And Tyndale's one, the famous quote, you know, by God's grace... There, there will be a time when a plowboy, you know, the least educated person is just following two oxen plowing in a field. He'll know more of the Bible than the priests will. And truly that, that really was the case. He says, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Um, they smuggled these Bibles in all over the place uh, in bolts of cloth, in, in, in wheat, you know, as they would go from the continent, get spread all over the place. Um, there was a huge program in England for a time, and Henry eventually, there was the Coverdale Bible, there was the Great Bible, there was a the Matthews Bible with John Rogers, um, and eventually the, the, there was a Geneva Bible. But the Great Bible became, became what the, the King of England said, yeah, and they wrote it to him and he said, oh, this is a great thing. But at this time, he was still saying, no, 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 it's so scary to have it in your hands. Because here's the idea, it would be the front few rows here, we're all the educated people, so we can have a Bible because we can understand it, but you illiterate masses back there, you bad readers. I don't trust you. You're going to do something bad with it. You're going to do something inaccurate with it. So I don't even want it in your hands. And if, if you talk to a priest today, um, many of them memorize huge amounts of scripture because maybe they've been uh, in a group where they do a lot of repetition. I mean, you know, I bring up Father Bradley a lot just because I know him so well. But, you know, he's got huge chunks of the Psalms memorized just because he repeated them eight times a day for six years while he was in in the orders in Arkansas, I think. Anyway, so, but, and what does it mean? And so the idea of you having a Bible and saying, Patrick Rowe in the back saying, I'm reading the word of God and here is what it says and let me give you the meaning That's terrifying to people. How dare you? You can't do that. What if you get it wrong? It's God's word. You get it wrong. You might get struck down. You shouldn't even try. Don't even try. Don't even learn it. I mean, that's historically, there were centuries of that kind of thinking permeating most of the kind of known world, if you will, that had copies of anything. So then reading becomes such a huge deal. Tyndale and, and the other people that I mentioned, people are learning to read and people are reading the word of God or snippets of it. And people are, are preaching, and people are saying, God's word really changes things. And for believers in here, when, when you started reading the word for yourself, like really, like I'm going to read this, and I want to know what God says. Like God is talking to me, and, I'm gonna, and I want to know what he says. And you read it, and you say, Almighty God wants Thad to do this differently, or Almighty God has done this for sinners, and I'm a sinner. I know, believers in here, it changed your life when you started reading this for yourself. And so picture that all over England and parts of Europe, and then the neighbors are saying, you don't have a Bible, do you? You're not supposed to have Bibles. And you're saying, look, look at what's going on right here. I mean, we could add, I surely don't have time for this, but I'll go there anyway. The the first Afghan that has come with a group of Afghans has confessed Christ this week. So here's a guy that in Afghanistan, five kids, he and his wife are saying something's going on. They were researching Esau because they they knew some Esau from, from the Quran. And so they watched YouTube videos. They shut the windows, closed everything up, and watched the Jesus film and watched it again and watched it again and watched it again. And then he came here and... They kind of won't, we don't even know his name, and we don't even know what church he's part of. And we're kind of dying to know. But we don't know yet. We just heard all this this morning. A church reached out to him, and he started going on Sunday and on Wednesday night. People were really, really kind to him. Christians really are different. This Jesus, he really is true. Uh, uh, A solid believer met with him last night and wrote everybody and said, This guy's a brother in the Lord. He is trusting in Christ alone. He's going to get baptized. They don't want to let his name out. Already the other African community is going, what in the world this cannot be? But the word of God is pushing this guy. When he came here, he could have the Bible. He could read. He could hear. This is what God says. And it, God uses that. God changes people. So praise the Lord for that. There's my little, I I got off. I told Natalie this morning, could you have had a better Mother's Day present than that? Because Natalie's reading this. Natalie on the way in. Typically has a bowl of some kind of gross oatmeal mixed with bird seed of some type that she eats, and she loves it, and it has coconut oil in it because she loves oil, co- but she whips that up and is like, "This is the best and she you know tries not to slosh it on herself while we while we drive in and, um, and then today she 's reading this while just bawling her eyes out she 's flailing around with that bowl, and I said. Could I, you know, I'm driving. Can I can I hold that for you? You know, you want no, I'm fine. <laughs> and she goes, and our kids, and she's reading it to the kids. And I said, Could you have had a better Mother's Day present than that? My goodness, no. But but God working, you know? Okay, so we keep on going. So God sees hearts. Um, at this time, better scoot through some of these. Um, you guys can just read that. This is Edward Fox, who may or may not have even been a believer, but he said, Hey, you priests if you don't get so you know the Bible, you're going to look like idiots because the people in your church, they're reading it. So you better figure it out. Um, this is kind of a famous picture. Well, we won't, we won't go into that. Um, for some reason, I'm already on Council of Trent right there looking kind of serious. Okay, I'm going to jump down a little bit. Okay, we're gonna, we'll go back to Trent. Uh, I just want to show you this right, no, I didn't want that one either. I didn't want that either. Okay. Here, a little. Here, don't get sick here. Okay, we'll just leave it right there. Um, a couple things they did at that time. Henry VIII goes kind of all in on Protestants, mostly because he wants to make the Catholics look bad. There's some political reasons. He sees power coming to him. Kind of in a superstitious way, maybe I can manipulate God to do this and this and this. Okay. Um, At the same time, um, some of his leaders were strong Protestants and were trying to do some good things. So monasteries are getting closed. Half of the religious priests in the monasteries left and went into secular work. Some of them like converted to... Church of England, but how much, I mean, it was, it was a, it was a be a really hard time. You think of, of, hey, uh, Titus, you need to appoint elders in every city. And you just think of the challenge of, we're going to come to Owensboro. There's one church. You guys have all been Roman Catholic, but some of you are reading your Bibles and we're going to have to, um, it comes from the president of the United States, that, hey, Pastor Mark, you're a Protestant now, kinda, and um, here's some things you're going to do now, so quit preaching how you used to, and you're going to preach this differently. And, I mean, that's what it would be like. Or you can lose your job. So there's priests that are becoming Episcopal priests, Anglican priests, because they, they, don't want to lose their job, but what do they really believe? So what are they teaching? And so they're sending people around trying to say, okay, you, you have to preach this way. This also informs us, as we'll see in a few weeks with the Puritans, when they were saying, we want to purify the Church of England and we want to do things this way, when people are saying, no, 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 you have to do it this way because they'd spent decades trying to stamp out this kind of teaching and that kind of teaching. So just imagine being in that church when one week you're hearing this and the next week, hey, here's something completely different or somewhat different. Or but this is the same. Really, really a, a confusing time right there. Uh, Thomas Cromwell, who would be like that great, great, great uncle of Oliver Cromwell. You think English Civil Wars and the Puritans will look at in the future. He did a lot of these changes. He did bring in Anne of Cleves, and that was probably one of the reasons he got his head cut off. Um, the yeah. So at that time there was a lot of the the faking within, um, the Roman Catholic Church that we want to run from and avoid. There's the, um, there was a cylinder in one church where if you look, as a cylinder is supposed to be have Christ's blood, and if you looked at it, you could see nothing. But if you gave enough money and the priest behind there that you couldn't see spun the dial, you could say, oh, there's blood in there. Oh, you've given enough money. Okay, good. You can go on. There's another one, um, the Root of Hail, I think it was called. I'd have to, I'd have to look that up. But um, it was basically it was, it was a uh, skeleton that, if you gave enough money, it would like give you a little shoulder nod. Or they said it could wink, but how could a skeleton wink? But if you look up anywhere, it'll say the skeleton could wink. I don't know how a skeleton would wink because there's nothing winkable there. But anyway, it would move around. It could, but they had, you know, a guy behind there had wires and was moving stuff around. So they'd expose all this to prove, hey, their argument was every Roman Catholic was a fraud. I like think we would argue there were some true believers in that group, those that didn't go along with some of the theology and things that they had there. But anyway, that was a big deal at the time. Um, so Bibles were starting to go all over the place. Um, and then we have the Council of Trent. And we don't really have much time to get into the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent uh, covered about 20 years um, Here's some affirmations that they would give, and I think these would be important to see. So some of these things were not officially recognized by the Roman Catholic Church until the Council of Trent. And that's an important thing because we kind of will think, oh, this has always been, but Council of Trent stamped with a yes many of these things. You know, The the Vulgate declared as authentic. Well, Jerome's Latin Vulgate was from the year 400. That was the first time it was officially said authentic, and that's when the Apocrypha was first said, this is scripture. So if you're talking with Roman Catholics, even some Lutherans and some others that might, that are going to affirm Apocrypha, it was really Council of Trent was the first one that officially said, yes, this is scripture for sure. The sacraments, give grace even if recipients do not believe. Put like codified, stamped, this is what we believe. But it makes a big difference when I'm evangelizing Indians in Mexico. It makes a big difference when I go to the the Caribbean, and I'm going to say, hey, slave slash brother, here's what we're going to start believing now. Um, formal rec- recognition of purgatory. Number four, church tradition recognized with equal esteem with the Old Testament and New Testament scripture. It's a big step to take. Council of Trent, the Roman Catholic Church. Six, we got penance there, and justification by faith repudiated. And we could go into some detail here, but I'll just... I have several of these, but I'll just read this one. If anyone says that by faith alone, the impious, that sinners are justified, that nothing else is required in cooperation in order to obtain the grace of justification, that is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be anathema. So I hope you're hearing that. Um, Next one, uh, Canon 24 if anyone says that justice received is not preserved and increased before God through good works, but that the said works are merely the fruits and signs of justific- justification obtained, but not a cause of the increase, let him be anathema. Anathema means let him be cursed. So just to be clear, when um, uh, your son-in-law, Massimo. when Massimo was here a couple years ago on a Wednesday night, he, I said, Massimo, you're leading Wednesday night prayer time. Here's what I want you to say. Here's what I want you to like, remind us of, because it's a really Catholic commu- Roman Catholic community. Like, official Roman Catholic doctrine says salvation by faith alone is anathema. Let him be accursed. Because I have, have never had nice, Catholic, kind friends in my life till I moved to Owensboro, Kentucky. And I'm sure they're all over. Nice, kind, Roman Catholics. Okay. And some of you in here might be Roman Catholic, I don't know that. But official doctrine, they say, salvation by faith alone does not bring one to salvation. And we have a tendency of saying nice people say similar things about God, but if justification means something different, we have a problem on their hands. So, you know, I could never sign the evangelicals and Catholics together. Some, some godly people chose to do that. I could never do that. Um, R.C. Sproul's book, uh, I think it's just called Justification, um, really, really, really good. But we need to remember, this is the official position. So whether we look at Galatians, we look at all kinds of Ephesians, we look at all kinds of different places, Romans, all kinds of places in Scripture, this is an important one to think through. Because if this is not true, then why are we sending a nickel to Massimo? Why would, why would a missionary go to Italy? Why would a missionary go to Ireland? Why would a missionary go to any place if, if they just say, you know, Duane in Serbia? Ortho- different, orthodox, but they say God, they say Jesus, they say some similar things, but if, if it doesn't mean what scripture means, it's different. So, and challenging place to share the gospel? My goodness, yes, but so, so necessary um we have some other canons there um here's some blood and and gore for you saint bartholomew's day massacre we won't go into that basically Huguenots, which is calvinists brawling with roman catholics roman catholics were almost always winning uh late 1500s uh tens of thousands up to 30,000 died in one week where they basically just went through towns were killing people and pitching them out the window women children kids this picture has them you know piled up in the back right there Um, the pope at the time came out with a a coin commemorating and cheering for them Um, here's God's avenging angel and here's uh, those killing the Huguenots right there. So you could get coins were were minted for that. The little cross right there. Some of you probably wear a necklace of that or earrings or something like that. Pretty pretty uh, cool thing right there. So we don't have time to get into Edward, uh, the sisters, and and all that stuff in England. You you guys can read about that. Um, but I, but I will say this. We've talked about the word of God being important. We've talked about God seeing hearts. And I think just the, um, the horror of, if you were living through the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre and you're saying, I'm a follower of Christ, maybe I lived, but my wife and children are all laying dead on the ground there and they're being, the corpses are being abused and there's nothing I can do. Is God real? Is God true? And... Um, Natalie gets really terrific church history books for our kids that they're not as interested as, as we would wish, but we have lots, and um, gives them for birthdays and stuff. And, and uh, this one is Joel Beakey and someone from his church. And um, he has this quote at the end, if I could leave us with this. Uh, this is right after the writing of the Heidelberg Catechism, which is future to, to what we're talking about here. And each of these, guys, well, Heidelberg Catechism was written before St. Bartholomew's Day, but after like Henry VIII stuff and all that. Um, each of those guys kind of had a difficult end of life. Like It looked like their section of the world was moving towards healthy Protestantism, and then it was pulled back. And each of them died in less than encouraging circumstances, and one was killed. But, but this is what Beeky says. People may come and go... They may die for their faith or be removed from their homes. Some may think that Satan has won the victory or destroyed what they worked so hard to do. But the truth of the Lord stands forever. Thanks be to God. And so what we like to see as humans is victory and churches booming and growing. And we sometimes see that and we sometimes don't. Persecution comes to North Africa the church did not thrive in persecution in North Africa. It virtually died out. But God has truth and God is on his throne, and we're going to trust him. And as we started, death and trauma are normal in this world. I don't want it for me. I don't want it for you. I don't want it for people you love. I... But there's a reason we're saying, Come, Lord Jesus, and we're going to trust in you. Let me pray and then we'll get out of here. Lord, you are good even in trauma, may we learn from these that have dealt with just horrific things to be faithful to the end, to live for the well-done, good, and faithful servant, to to cry out to you as, as Ridley and Latimer did, trusting in you, trusting in you, trusting in you to the end. And when you give us these windows of peace as we are abundantly enjoying now, no persecution, I even thought well of often in communities, no one's killing us or trying to kill us, that we would thank you for these times of peace. You are good to us, and we're thankful. And Lord, do come quickly, and thank you for opening the King of England's eyes, at least to the point of taking away persecution for a time, at different times in history. In Jesus' name, amen.